0: Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of amplify i'm your host sam ashu today tr eckler and i are interviewing two of the five authors from the february 2024 emergency medicine practice article on right ventricular heart failure dr nick harrison and dr daniel brenner join us for the detailed conversation about how to make the diagnosis conditions that might lead to the diagnosis and what it looks like clinically for us in the emergency department. It's a rather lengthy conversation and it is jam packed with just tons of pearls. So I really encourage you to take it small chunks at a time, take a good listen to this podcast, go read the article and then go claim your four hours of CME and keep this information handy at your next shift. And of course, don't forget ebmedicine.net, your home for all things emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine and Urgent Care. All three of those journals being published every month with pathways, clinical pathways that are both in print and interactive on the website. Lots and lots of things to investigate on the website. And the courses, the laceration course, the EKG course, so many things all at your disposal at epmedicine.net. And now let's jump into the conversation.
1: I'm Nick Harrison. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine
0: at
2: Indiana University. I'm Donnie Brenner. I'm also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Indiana University.
0: Thank you so much for joining TR and I on the podcast today to talk about your article. You are two of the five authors on this article for the February 2024 issue on right-sided heart failure in emergency medicine practice. I appreciate you both taking the time to author the article, but especially to be on the podcast, there's a lot in this article. You guys packed in a ton of information, and so we're going to walk through it. Specifically, we've got listeners who are in all practices of medicine, so in the emergency department as physicians, as residents, as nurse practitioners and PAs, but also some who are in the pre-hospital setting, some who are nurses as well, and so I like to hit these topics generally first and then focus in on the emergency medicine physician or clinician care as well. When we talk about right-sided heart failure, I'd like to start with a little pathophysiology. Would one of you like to tell us a little bit more about what we know about what precipitates right-sided heart failure? So right-sided heart
1: failure, the first thing to think about is that unlike your LV, your left ventricle, which is this big, thick-walled thing, the RV is this thin-walled, kind of wimpy thing that for a long time we just didn't pay attention to because we're like, eh, it's a thin-walled, wimpy thing. Why, why do I care about it? What we now know is that thin-walled wimpy thing with just a little bit of change in one of basically three areas can have pretty profound and sudden changes in effective right heart function. And since right heart cardiac output equals left heart cardiac output, unless you got a big cardiac shunt somewhere, it all ends up the same. And ultimately, the big three domains to to try and keep it in an easy-to-understand conceptual model. You have the pipes, which on the front end, RV afterload, is the pulmonary circulation. You have the pump itself, so the RV. And then you have the pipes on the front end, which is preload, right atrial pressure, and then everything that backs up from the IVC there. Most of the time, and basically every circumstance, except for a few very specific ones, the primary insult is increased pulmonary artery pressure. And there's lots of different ways that can happen. And when we talk about specific conditions, we can talk about that. But the bottom line is the RV muscle is only meant to pump against very small pressures, like about 25 millimeters of mercury usually. And even slight increases can start causing dysfunction, decreased output, increased pressures. Dilation, then you start getting a little ischemia. You get elevated right atrial pressure, and you get all of these issues. That then flow from there.
0: Yeah, this was conceptually something I hadn't really thought about previously. So the amount of pressure it takes to actually strain or reduce the effective pumping of your right ventricle—that amount of pressure is really quite small, right?
1: Yeah, it's small, and because the absolute value is small, it means that any change is also small, both literally in terms of millimeters of mercury, but also I think conceptually it helps to think of it like that because it means just small changes in physiology can cause huge swings in overall clinical status. I like to think of right heart failure patients as being particularly hemodynamically brittle. They're often not unstable when you see them, but you do one
0: little tiny thing and it can just push them right off of a cliff. There's a good summary of some of the conditions that can result in right ventricular failure. Table 2 on page 6 of the article, which lists things like pulmonary embolism, septic cardiomyopathy, right ventricular MI, acute valvular insufficiency, post-cardiac surgery, post-LVAD placement, which actually was something I hadn't thought of before, and then acute on chronic heart failure exacerbations as well. So it's a good list of things. There are some things that we see quite typically or quite frequently in the emergency department. When we think about people who are presenting with right-sided heart failure, clinically, what kinds of complaints
2: do they have? What does it look like? The problem with RV failure is that the symptoms are so vague. There's not a single symptom out there that's going to make a slam dunk case of RV failure, especially in somebody that doesn't have a prior diagnosis. They're insidious things that people have with a variety of other syndromes. So Dyspnea and exertion could be their COPD. It could be undiagnosed pulmonary hypertension or undiagnosed RV failure. So syncope even, you have syncope from an undiagnosed PE, that's acute right heart failure. That's causing your syncope right there. Your early satiety, any of those things, exercise intolerance is one of the more common ones. Any of those things can show up as as a vague symptom in even a relatively young person. I actually diagnosed somebody with right heart failure a few days ago, 27-year-old, no history, just had bland, vague symptoms. Okay. So nothing specific. What about when it comes to the differential diagnosis or
0: all things right-sided heart failure? What kind of things do we need to keep in mind when we're seeing these people in the emergency department?
1: Yeah. So starting your differential diagnosis, I think it, it bears repeating what Donnie was talking about the presentation. It's very nonspecific. You're not going to get a different presentation for right-sided heart failure than you are for left-sided heart failure. The only real kind of exception to that is that if you have someone who has pure right-sided heart failure with no left-sided disease, theoretically they shouldn't have any pulmonary edema. Unfortunately, about half of acute decompensated left-sided heart failure is actually biventricular. So that even in and of itself is not a great uh, a great bar to to determine things. So with that sort of vague presentation, once you have someone who has signs and symptoms of heart failure, period. There's sort of two tracks there where practically speaking as an emergency physician, you're going to make the diagnosis. One of them is that you are not going to be thinking about right heart failure, but you're going to be diagnosing someone with another condition that's often accompanied and complicated by right heart failure. So sepsis, acute pulmonary embolus, acute decompensated heart failure, or quote-unquote left-sided heart failure. The other way is that you're going to diagnose someone with this syndrome of what looks like heart failure clinically based on your exam and your history and everything. And then you're going to think, okay, what sort of risk factors does this person have that could lead me to think that this could be right-sided either in full or in part? Unfortunately, I know that's not super helpful. There is a lot of vague stuff there that you have to sort through and one of my least favorite clinical phrases. You have to have a high index of clinical suspicion. I don't know, for lack of a better term, that's how you have to go. That said, your general differential is going to come down to a few very specific things that are more common compared to others that are more rare, I see them a couple of times a career cases. So most common cause of acute right heart failure. So just pure acute right heart failure that you're going to see in the ED is pulmonary embolus. I mentioned some of the others already that are uh, more common than I think we realize, but a little bit less common than PE. Septic cardiomyopathy often involves the RV, and that has really important implications for how you resuscitate someone with sepsis. RVMIs can be often an inferior MI, but can be a certain proportionate anterior and septal MIs as well. Patients with ARDS or another sort of ARDS-like syndrome, in particular, severe COVID-19, anyone who gets put on positive pressure ventilation for sort of bilateral lung involvement of an acute process are very high risk, like up to 25% risk of acute core pulmonale. And then we mentioned a couple of the other things too, post-LVAD, because a lot of heart failure, especially advanced heart failure is biventricular, you put an LVAD in, RV starts to wear out. And any RV dysfunction that was already there only gets a little bit worse. And it's actually the most common complication after LVAD placement. And then your sort of more common acute on chronic conditions are patients who have quote unquote left-sided heart failure. Again, in the acute setting, up to half of that is actually biventricular involvement Patients who have COPD and other chronic hypoxic diseases, and then some other chronic causes like chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, sickle cell disease, it's very common and actually probably something that we miss a lot in our sickle cell patients, and a handful of other things there that are kind of listed out more in more detail in the article. The only one I mentioned is pulmonary arterial hypertension, because I think that sort of sticks in its own category. And it also, it gets confusing from a terminology perspective because a lot of times we'll see that in notes or we'll, we'll write that and we conflate pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a very specific syndrome, with all the other causes, the far more common
2: causes of pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure that we see. Yeah, One thing that I saw actually not long ago for the first time that I wonder if we're going to see a lot more of is post-COVID-19 fibrotic lung disease leading to pulmonary hypertension. I saw my first, she was young. She was in her 30s, had right. severe COVID two years ago, was intubated for a while, and then got better and went home, and then came in florid right heart failure, and we did all the things looking for other causes. But looking at her lungs and looking at her COVID-19, of course, I have a hard time believing it wasn't related to that. So I wonder if that's going to be one of the subsequent waves of COVID-related illness in the next couple of years a lot higher incidence of pulmonary hypertension in the setting of fibrotic lung disease from severe COVID.
0: Now, you mentioned a lot of conditions. Let's take a couple of those here one at a time. When we think about causes of right-sided heart failure, acute PE comes to mind, and that's the most common cause for right-sided heart failure. Is that right? It's the most common
1: cause of acute right-sided heart failure. So excluding all of the acute on chronic causes, which actually as a group make up a bigger proportion. So acute on chronic heart failure, biventricular heart failure, or group 3 pulmonary hypertension, secondary to COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, those we're going to see much more commonly. In fact, those two, what we call group 2 and group 3 pulmonary hypertension, are the most common causes overall. But as far as isolated acute causes of right heart failure that aren't linked to some other chronic condition, it's going to be acute PE.
0: And the clot burden, that we typically think of being necessary to cause acute right-sided heart failure is what kind of thing? Are we thinking about large saddle kind of emboli, or we're talking about these small subsegmental pulmonary emboli, or is it just a giant spectrum and it could be anywhere in between? It's a pretty big spectrum.
2: The interesting thing about the data are there there are some data correlating larger clot burden with worsened disease, but it's not as concrete an association as you might think. I think there are equally poor data relating central location of clot to worse disease. But again, not something that you can hang your head on, unfortunately.
0: Okay. So not a linear progression there as the clot burden gets bigger, you're guaranteed you're going to get heart failure. It's not that close a relationship.
2: No, it's a, a thing that makes sense intrinsically, but is not necessarily represented in the data. And thinking demographically, by the way, one thing that was surprising to me as we were writing this review is how poor the data on demographics in pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure are. There are not great studies on the overall prevalence, especially individual causes. So when you're asking about what's the most common cause, the answer is we don't really know. The data, certainly no comparative data, no studies out there comparing different causes of RV failure out there. What we did was we strung together as many different cohort studies as we could. So looking at RV failure in HEF-PEF, RV failure, and HEF-REF, RV failure and lung disease. But none of them are, like, there's no big cohort that I'm aware of it, maybe, that looks at all these different populations and assesses what the more common causes of non-pulmonary arterial hypertension are.
1: Yeah, it, in the outpatient setting, there is, and we have fairly clear answers there, but unfortunately for patients presenting to the ED and in the ED and critical care settings, we don't have one large registry that looked at, 10,000 cases of patients with right heart failure and said this proportion was due to PE. This proportion was due to left-sided LV disease. This proportion was due to sepsis. This proportion was this. We don't really have that all in one study. And that's the problem because you get sampling bias when you are trying to compare different cohorts to one another. So take that with a caveat whenever we say X is the most common. It's the most common as far as we know now based on to Donnie's point, some relatively less than what I would prefer level of epidemiological evidence.
3: I think you guys did such a good job just like changing kind of the way that I thought about this. The one study that you quoted that blew my mind was this idea that 53% of patients that came into the ED with acute heart failure had right ventricular disease or pulmonary hypertension, yet it was unrecognized 96% of the time. Like, I think that's what it is that we're immediately looking at the left ventricle and saying, all right, this is the cause of the heart failure. It's hef it's HEF-REF, I'm moving on. And that immediately struck that concerning feeling of truth that like, wow, I'm not looking at the right side nearly as much as I am the left. And I, I need to change my paradigm when I approach these patients.
1: I'm not exactly unbiased because that was my study. So I'm very happy that you appreciated that, but it is crazy, right? I think I was shocked when we found those results. And I think it does make sense that we under-recognize the amount of RV involvement in a bunch of different processes, not just acute heart failure, but sepsis and all of these other conditions, primarily because we have one mostly reliable test that we don't usually do, and that's echocardiography. And that really is the test that we have to do to diagnose right heart failure in our patient population. We're not, at least at me and Donnie's shops, we're not floating swans on people. I don't know if that's something that anyone really does in the ED anymore, if it ever was. But we also don't get echoes on most of these people. But luckily, with the advent of -of point-of-care ultrasonography and people becoming a lot more facile with specific things that we can talk about for specifically the right heart. It's something that's definitely feasible.
0: Now, you mentioned sepsis, and in the article, there was one study that noted up to a third of patients with sepsis or septic shock actually exhibited right ventricular dysfunction on echo. And I'm wondering, clinically now, if we're seeing somebody with sepsis or septic shock, barring doing a bedside echo, clinically when does this become a relevant issue for somebody with sepsis? So I'm resuscitating somebody in septic shock. And
2: when does it matter to me that this person has right ventricular dysfunction and why? So I think from my standpoint, at least, it matters when your patient isn't getting better with the therapy that, that we're giving. I'm, I think all of us owe Manny River's a big debt in terms of the revolution in sepsis care that came about through his work. But I think we're a little bit past that approach. That everybody gets central line and large volume fluid resuscitation. I think this is part of the idea that not everybody needs that much fluid and not everybody gets better from that much fluid and that there, there is an opportunity cost to not understanding your patient's hemodynamic. One of my favorite studies in the last few years, not because I follow what it does, but because it, it proves a point, was the Andromeda shock in Brazil, looking at ICU patients and capillary refill. And it's not that I think capillary refill is a magical tool to diagnose and treat sepsis is that you have to go and see your patient to do a cap refill, reassess them. And so I think this is one of those times your patient with sepsis that you're resuscitating with fluids isn't getting better. Okay. You go, you do your assessment. You can do a cap refill if you want, but you echo and see, oh, is part of the problem here that my patient has reached the limits of their fluid responsiveness? Are they demonstrating signs of RV or LV by ventricular dysfunction? do I need to switch to an alternative approach to resuscitation that is perhaps less fluid forward and more other mechanisms for support, whether iotrobes, whatever other support method they need. So it lets us be more nuanced than everybody gets a central line and lots of fluids. I think that's, that might be where we should probably head.
1: Yeah. And I would just add to that, that I think in some ways it's almost easier to understand the physiology at play from thinking about the sepsis patient. And there's a couple concepts there that I think are very important to highlight that we talk about, and the dogma has long been that right heart failure is preload dependent. And like any cliche or any dogma, there's truth to that. And then there's an amount of that statement that actually is somewhat misleading. And I think sepsis is a very good example. So in, in fact, patients who have right-sided heart failure, preload too much preload is often a problem. In fact, it's often the primary problem that transmits a lot of the multi-organ dysfunction from the right heart to what you practically see in your patients. For a very long time, we thought that the primary driver of cardiorenal dysfunction was low cardiac output. That's mostly been disproven outside of shock states. It's actually excess venous congestion. Same sort of thing for cardiohepatic dysfunction, although there is shock liver, which is a different flavor. So you get too much preload. You get too much filling of the RV and that thin walled RV. If it can't accommodate more preload, it's just going to dilate and dilate. And then you get sarcomeres that are no longer well lined. You get ischemia from pressure through the wall. You get contraction that's no longer organized because, remember, the RV and the LV share half of each other through their wall. And you get all of these different problems where giving more fluid at best isn't going to make things better, and at worst is going to make things dramatically worse. I think this is like the one of the biggest things that, from a conceptual standpoint, I'm a big Concepts guy. When I'm teaching residents and stuff, I'm very much trying to teach intuition more so than facts. I think that is like one of the key pieces of intuition that's really important here in these patients is to understand that you have to assess is this someone who, you know, is already at or past the limits of what their preload possibly could be? Really, the patients we should be resuscitating with more volume are the ones who have a completely flat IVC, who are. Just clinically dehydrated, both from your physical exam and from your history, history of poor PO intake or whatever. Like the ones who obviously need more fluid are the ones who need more fluid. It's less obvious who doesn't need fluid. I think that's where echocardiography helps out a little bit. And also just like Donnie said, assessing your patient, not using a one-size-fits-all approach to
2: it. Nick, how would you feel about rephrasing that to be RV failure is preload sensitive? not dependent.
1: Yeah, I think so. The whole thing about RV failure being preload dependent is, I think, a conflation of two different ideas. It's the idea that if we say it's preload dependent, but what we really mean is that systolic blood pressure in patients who have systemic systolic blood pressure in patients who have RV failure is preload dependent. So you change preload a little bit in someone who has right-sided heart failure, their systolic blood pressure is going to Fluctuate, but eventually it will equilibrate. And ultimately, uh, too much preload is a problem for patients for eye heart failure. So you kind of have two different things going on that we lump into one dogma statement that doesn't really work. Yeah. It's, I think, thinking about things as their preload brittle is a little bit better of a way of thinking about it.
2: Preload brittle, preload sensitive, but basically the idea too much, bad, too little, also bad. That's right. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay, so let's shift gears then to infarction as causes for right ventricular dysfunction. And in the article, it mentioned that as many as a third of anterior MIs result in right ventricular dysfunction, and this particular population is far more prone to complications like cardiogenic shock or arrhythmias. Is that accurate? That's correct.
1: So I don't want everyone to go and start thinking that, oh man, one third of my MI patients are going to have overt RV failure. So when we say RV dysfunction, we mean that there's echocardiographic signs that there is RV dysfunction. I'm defining something by using the same term to define it. There's an abnormality in function that puts them at risk for going into overt right heart failure, but you might not have clinical right heart failure. It is a big proportion though. And you know that the anterior MI is one that we often don't think of, but again, half of the RV is that septum. So you do get a certain amount from anterior MIs, not just the classic kind of association of inferior.
0: All right. And then there are some of the mechanical causes for right ventricular dysfunction. Like the article mentions, positive pressure ventilation and acute respiratory distress syndrome. How exactly are those two affecting the right ventricle?
1: Yeah. So this is one that I'll be honest. I thought I knew a lot about before we did this article and I realized there is probably a lot more risk out there that I didn't appreciate. It's a pretty startling number. There was one retrospective cohort of about 500 patients that found right heart failure, acute right heart failure as a complication of ARDS in 25 to 50% of patients, which is just mind blowing, like far more than what I would ever have guessed. And this is actually one of the areas where we do have if not great epidemiological data, we at least have slightly better because we do have a lot of published cohorts from different critical care settings just on vented ARDS patients. The basic idea, though, is that when you put someone on positive pressure ventilation, you're doing a couple of things that are very disadvantageous for the heart. The biggest one and like number one is that you're collapsing a lot of the pulmonary microcirculation. So you put positive pressure into the lungs, you distend those alveoli with positive pressure, which again is not physiologic, nor under negative pressure inspiration, you're not pushing pressure in. That collapses the walls of the alveoli and puts pressure on the rest of the interstitial lung tissue. And in all of those places are little tiny capillaries and venules and other parts of the pulmonary circulation that then collapse after a certain point of increased intrathoracic pressure, all of that gets transmitted back to the main pulmonary artery and then eventually the RV. The other part of that is that you're also decreasing systemic venous return. And this is where the effects are variable. Because again, if it's someone who is particularly right atrial pressure down, who's already hypovolemic for some reason, then it's probably going to cause a big swing in dumping that person's blood pressure. If it's someone who has a profound elevation in right atrial pressure already, it may be slightly beneficial. Although again, small changes, even if it's beneficial in the long term, small changes can cause huge changes in hemodynamics temporarily. And so the dreaded side effect there from both of those effects increased RV afterload and the decrease in RV preload is that you get a rapid hemodynamic collapse. Other things in ARDS, you have a lot of EQ mismatch. And and this isn't just specific to ARDS, but hypoxia causes pulmonary vasculature to constrict. That increases total pulmonary resistance and increases the burden on the right side of the heart. You get parts of the lung that are perfused but not ventilated. All these things contribute to the overall occurrence of what generally gets called acute core pulmonale in the literature, which basically just means right heart failure secondary to intubation and the things we intubate for.
0: When we think about positive pressure ventilation in ARDS, the positive pressure ventilation changes can cause acute right heart failure while they're still in the ED. We might see this immediately or soon after intubation. What we see with Restorated distress syndrome is something that's typically seen in the ICU. Is that more of a
2: delayed complication? Basically, anytime that you're increasing the intrathoracic pressure exogenously, this can happen. And whether the ARDS is diagnosed in the unit or not, my suspicion is that the decreased compliance and increased stiffness of the lungs is present before they get the official label of ARDS anyway. So I would say Anybody that you're thinking might be at risk for ARDS, developing rapidly progressive multifocal lung disease with decreased compliance, those folks are going to be at really high risk for this, whether they have that label or not. So I think it's very relevant to our practice.
1: Yeah, I maybe should have backed up a second and said, really, you have two root causes to the problem. There's the ARDS itself, which can be from all kinds of different things, right? Sepsis, pancreatitis, all kinds of. Things, bilateral pneumonias in particular. There was this particular virus that I remember happening fairly recently that caused a lot of bilateral pneumonias. And so there's that component, the actual lung disease, but there's what we do iatrogenically. And that's in particular intubating and putting someone on high levels of particularly peep that take a bad situation and make it worse. So It depends how far along they are in the disease process when they get to us. Five years ago, I would have said, well, we don't see a ton of patients who are truly in Florida ARDS when they hit the E. You know, now with COVID, certainly during the peak of the pandemic, that was, I don't know, all I saw for weeks on end. Now things are a little bit better, obviously, but I do think it's something more common that we're going to have to think about, and it does make me think about the patient that Donnie brought up who had a lot of fibrotic lung disease from sequelae of a bad COVID infection.
3: I feel like a resident right now. I just want to talk about management. I want you guys to get to management. I want you to tell me how to fix these people. I know you're going to tell me about diagnostic stuff and that's so great, but just explain to me how I'm not supposed to screw this thing up and make people worse because all I'm thinking right now is try something for a few minutes and then see what gets better or worse and then reassess.
2: That's actually not a bad approach.
3: So tell Um, me about the EKGs, tell me about the echoes, and then let's get to the part where you tell me how to fix them. All right. All right. Let's,
0: I will jump in and say, those are all the acute causes for right ventricular dysfunction or right ventricular failure. There are some chronic causes mentioned in the article, things like chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. This is pulmonary hypertension as a result of PE. This is delayed complications. Is that right? Delayed, although weirdly enough, a lot of patients... Don't have a history of a known PE beforehand.
2: That was the struck me was just the percentage of people that are diagnosed with CTEF that don't have a diagnosis of PE.
0: So I'm wondering if you don't have a diagnosis of PE, how do we know this is as a cause of some thromboembolic phenomenon?
1: So you you get diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, then you get a workup outpatient from a pulmonary hypertension specialist who eventually finds oh you have a lot of like really organized clots throughout your pulmonary circulation that we don't really know when they got there, but we know that you're having problems. One of our colleagues, Francis Russell, did some good studies looking at, that. I think could drive them the rel- relevance of CTEF for, for emergency medicine. There's a shockingly high percentage of patients who come to the ED and come back to the ED and come back to the ED and get CT pulmonary angiograms every single time, and they're just negative consistently. That's a huge, pretty strong predictor of that person having undiagnosed pulmonary hypertension. And I think uh, probably a large proportion of those patients are CTEF patients that otherwise we wouldn't diagnose. So just something to keep in your mind is when you see someone who keeps getting negative CT pulmonary angiograms, consider that it might be someone worth referring to cardiology or to uh, if you have a pulmonary hypertension clinic locally or just your local cardiologist even.
0: Okay. And then heart failure we mentioned, but then there are also congenital heart disease patients who will often get this as a complication, chronic right sided heart failure as a complication of their congenital heart disease, even if it's been addressed and repaired. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Many of the repairs of congenital heart disease end up with either a single ventricle or connecting the pulmonic vasculature directly to the vena cava. And that predisposes these folks to pulmonary hypertension, to RV failure, because you're essentially, putting them directly to venous pressure. They have no, no actual ability to squeeze blood into the pulmonary vasculature, make them extremely sensitive to any kinds of pressure in the pulmonary vasculature. So all those folks who have that type of palliation, that type of repair, very high risk for developing eventual right-sided failure. It's a good thing to keep in the back of your pocket. Just if you see
1: someone who has a history of any kind of major congenital cardiac condition, right heart failure as an adult... So 40, 50 is a pretty common presentation. It's 10% of patients overall.
0: And then you mentioned left ventricular assist device insertion can lead to right ventricular heart failure, commonly actually lead to right ventricular heart failure. Now, some of those patients are getting LVADs as a bridge to heart transplant. Some of them are just getting them as permanent therapy. Do they end up getting then a right ventricular assist device? Or is this something that once you get the diagnosis, you're kind of only possible therapy remaining would be a heart transplant. They
1: might get a temporary RVAD to to help them through for, again, a short period of time. Temporary being the key word there. But most of these patients' end goal, probably long after we see them, is heart transplant. And then certainly in between there is optimizing care of their heart failure as much as possible, drying them out, making sure that their meds are all optimized, But unfortunately, it's a pretty big reduction in survival once you find that you have right heart failure after an LVAD implantation.
0: Okay. Let's jump to some of our clinical care. So for our colleagues who are in the pre-hospital setting and listening, what kinds of things can they keep in mind to help us in the ED make this diagnosis? Is there anything that can be done even in the pre-hospital setting, anything helpful for this patient population? A lot of things not to do, which I think
1: is the biggest takeaway from pre-hospital care setting is because it's so hard to diagnose right heart failure without echo, directing care for it in pre-hospital settings is going to be challenging. And even making that diagnosis is going to be challenging. But anyone who has a risk, avoid the things that we know can cause catastrophic complications. The biggest one being intubating that person. We talked a little bit about the perils of large fluid boluses Mm -hmm. and someone who has right heart failure. And then one that is just, it's a little specific, but it's probably good to keep in the back of your mind because based on protocols, this could be what you have. Phenylephrine is relatively contraindicated in right heart failure because it does have the theoretical disadvantage compared to other pressors of pulmonary vascular constriction. So if you have a system that uses push-dose pressors, even in the pre-hospital setting, and you have a bunch of phenylephrine sticks,
0: don't use those on these patients. And try not to intubate. And this is for someone with known right ventricular heart failure, so they would have to tell you this diagnosis, obviously, ahead of time. Yeah.
1: I wish I had anything better to offer
0: pre-hospital providers, but it's tricky.
1: Most of the time, you're just not going to know
0: there is a section here on RVMI and some of the EKG changes you can pick up by doing right-sided or posterior leads, which can be helpful in the pre-hospital setting. I've had probably a handful of cases, I think, where our EMS colleagues have actually helped me make that diagnosis before they even hit the door by bringing me those posterior leads and say, hey, this is what I think they've got. And I went, hey, this is fantastic. Honestly, I wouldn't have thought to do it. It just didn't
2: occur to me. I'll plug that for, uh, for something that can be done in the pre-hospital setting for sure. That sounds like some terrific medics. One thing I'll throw in there as well, something that oftentimes medics will do with people with chest pain and trouble breathing is nitro. So the conventional teaching, especially in RVMI, is nitro is contraindicated, concerned for hemodynamic instability. Interestingly enough, there was a study in our review that showed minimal risk of hemodynamic instability with treating people with RVMI with nitro. So that may not be a real contraindication. I still might, if I have a strong suspicion for RV failure, I still might stay away from it simply because these are really physiologically complex people, and I wouldn't want to do that without necessarily being able to do an echo, but something that was safer than I thought it was based on our view. Don't worry
1: yeah. if you accidentally find out later that the person you gave Nitro to had an RVMI, and at least don't worry as much as you thought. Surprisingly, is not as big of a risk as
3: we thought it was. As someone who spent a lot of time in the rural places, in critical access hospitals, I had paramedics give nitro to what clearly looked like a right-sided MI. And most of those patients did fine, and then a few of them didn't. And it always perplexed me until this, and this makes more sense now, that like some of those people, that was helping them. And then a few of them, they were really needed preload and it wasn't there when they needed it. The one thing I would also add is having been to hospitals, didn't have resources. If they're on a medicine for pulmonary hypertension, that's the medicine that I really want paramedics pre-hospital to grab because a lot of pharmacies, a lot of hospitals aren't going to have that stuff. And if you can keep them on, that's going to make this a lot better of a problem when they're sitting in your emergency department.
2: And whatever you do, don't disconnect any of those.
3: That pump is should probably stay on.
1: <laughs> and uh, honestly, like that would be the one med where... That's such a good point because I, that'd be the one med where I would say, have them bring it from home, please. You'll get it. <laughs> because... Like you said, a lot of critical access hospitals, even just a lot of regional non quaternary care hospitals, are not necessarily going to have those meds, or if they do they're going to be something that you have to get from somewhere really far away uh, as a nocturnist. It's not the kind of thing that I want to have to wait an hour and a half to come through a tube. I think that's such a good point
0: all right and so once they make it to the emergency department and now they're in front of me and I've got to perform my history and physical exam, is there anything specific on history or exam? Obviously, if they tell me they have a history of right ventricular heart failure, that's very helpful. But barring that, is there anything in the history that might trigger a little reminder or anything on physical exam that might be unique to this patient population?
2: Oh, I wish there was. I really wish there was. The number one thing that you can do to think about and diagnose RV failure in somebody who doesn't know that they have it already is to look at their comorbidities and have a list of things in your brain saying, oh, that predisposes this person to having RV failure that might not be diagnosed. So be it your COPD, your left-sided heart failure, chronic fibrotic lung disease, any of those things, just realizing that your generic volume overload history could be their volume overload, could be COPD, or it could be something that isn't diagnosed yet. And then using that prompt to then go on your diagnostic adventure and find out the actual cause of this. So The number one thing by far is just considering that diagnosis and looking at the relevant comorbidities. Yeah,
1: use, use your clinical exam to diagnose heart failure as a broad overarching category. And then from there consider, okay, do I have to worry about the RV here? I think that's the way to go because like we were saying earlier, there's not much that you're going to get that's really different on RV failure versus Isolated LV failure versus biventricular failure. Anything that involves the LV theoretically is going to have pulmonary edema versus not. So if you hear crackles, great, but it could just be biventricular failure. Like T.R. mentioned, it's really common. I would also, I'm biased, I would put a plug in here for using your long ultrasound too. But I think either way, you're not really relying on your exam to differentiate between right-sided heart failure versus non-RV involvement in heart.
2: One other thing I'll throw in there is it's the patient who's doing all the right things. The person who says, I'm taking all my COPD inhalers, all 16 of them, every other med, I'm taking all of them and I'm just getting worse and worse. And that's a cue to say, all right, this person is compliant with their medications. They're up to date and something's still going on. Maybe there's something else going on with this patient that we haven't figured out yet because it's not their chronic condition. It's something related to their chronic condition that is now decompensated because Haven't found it yet. And if you have a chance looking through the article, table four goes through a lot of these possible comorbidities that are associated with RV failure. And just looking at those, looking for those risk factors can help figure things out.
0: Fantastic. Yes. I was just about to highlight both those tables, number three and number four. Number three lists all of the congenital cardiac conditions. So if you pick that up in history, that might trigger a reminder. And table four, as you mentioned, common emergency department diagnoses associated with acute right heart failure. So if they have one of these, they might have associated right heart failure as well. And someone that could
3: use a little bit more
0: investigation.
3: You guys are too smart sometimes. I feel like the physical exam is pretty straightforward. You just got to look for the pacemaker pocket, to see if that's still attached where it's supposed to. You got to see if they got a <laughs> pump and you got to see if they have a midline sternotomy scar and how old it is. Then you know if it's, new cardiac surgery or really old cardiac surgery. And then you're good. After there that, go. get the egg <laughs> first. Just like that. Get the <laughs> Come on. That's right.
0: Follow the drive line. Make sure it's connected to the battery pack. Okay. Biomarkers. So biomarkers are helpful or not helpful. It's hard to distinguish what's causing the biomarker elevation. And we don't really know if it's right-sided. In fact, that's causing the abnormality in the biomarker. We're talking about things like BNP. Is that right?
1: Yeah, same thing. Naturitic peptides, troponins, they're going to be helpful aside from like ACS related use of your troponin or just chronic elevations or mild non-ischemic elevation plus naturitic peptide elevations. These are signs of heart failure, but not necessarily right heart failure versus left heart failure versus
2: biventricular failure. It's going to be helpful right. in screening, but not necessarily ruling in. When all you have is a hammer, hit some nails.
3: With that in mind, with that in mind, looking at EKGs, you gave us a lot of really great EKG findings, but I feel like I've been battered by EKG findings in PE that like S1, Q3, T3 is there, but probably less often than it's not there. Is there anything really specific where you guys, when you're looking at EKG, are saying, this is really somebody that's got right heart failure. I'm demanding to get a real echo right now on this person. No, I really wish there were. Yeah, I wish the audience could hear the deafening sound of you guys shaking your head with that. That was just hard, and you just have to get through it. You just got to be a great doctor every day. That's all you got for us.
1: There was a a study that put together like an ECG score that was pretty accurate, it had over point B area under the curve for predicting RBD on echo. Okay. Problem was, it used seventeen different signs, so like you're not going to. That's on echo or an EKG. That's on an EKG. EKG, 17 different like discrete variables from the EKG and you ended up getting 0.82 area under the curve. So I guess you can argue whether that's good or bad based on that many variables. And for the record,
2: we only included eight of them on that table. The nine is inferior and acute STEMI. So yeah. we only included, eight, and it's still a big table. I yeah. was going to say,
3: I'm worried about right-sided MI. I'm worried about posterior MI. That feels like something I really need to know about the right heart from the EKG. After that, I, you guys have just given me all this weaponry to to be like, I want my echo, and then I want a real echo as soon as I can get it.
2: 100%. Oh, we love that, friend. That's great. Well,
3: that's all I took away from this is show me the real, show me the real ultrasound of the heart right now. Hundred percent.
0: There is a helpful table. Table five on page 11 of this article, which, as you said, lists several EKG findings that are suspicious for or can be associated with right heart failure. And so, if you're looking at an EKG and you're wondering, there's a whole litany of things here everything from a new right bundle branch block to ST elevation in V4R to prominent inferior P waves. There are lots of things that could suggest that there's some other physiologic abnormality like right atrial enlargement or right ventricular hypertrophy, which puts you at higher risk. So I don't want listeners to think there's nothing they can do. I would recommend looking at that table just to familiarize yourself and don't forget about those posterior leads. And then once we get past the ECG and we're moving on to echo, echocardiography is the the gold standard really for diagnosing this? Or there is mention of CT and MRI as well. Is cardiac MRI really necessary, appropriate? Is it more yeah. sensitive?
1: Technically speaking, I, our cardiologist colleagues, including, you know, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Etika Alonze, who is one of our co authors here. They would be very upset at me if we called ECHO the gold standard. It's going to be the closest thing that we have to a gold standard in emergency medicine and in most critical care settings. Because the real gold standard is a right heart cath. There's also cardiac MRI has come a long way to a place that it might be good enough to consider that as an alternative gold standard. But it, regardless, unless anybody out there has access that I don't know about and that we don't have at our fairly specialized quaternary care center in our uh, institute institution, it's you're not going to get a cardiac MRI like in the acute care setting. So it's the best we have, and it's what
2: you really should be on. I call it a reference standard. And you mentioned CT. CT is great for looking at potential causes of right heart failure, and it can show associated signs. Your RV to LV ratio, you can see dilation of the pulmonary artery, things like that, but it is not sensitive, and prognostic information from CT for right heart failure is at Best mediocre. It's pretty controversial in the literature. In certain contexts, sometimes it is associated with outcomes, but it's not. You know, when my CT reads signs of right heart failure, I'm going to go and get some better data with an echo, and then order a formal echo. I'm not going to be going saying, "Oh, there's right heart failure, right heart strain," on my CT. I'm done. That's it's not a good enough test to rule in, out, confirm anything. Yeah,
1: there there was one study that. Well, it wasn't the largest, but I think it was like a particularly illustrative one where they started from a place of people who got CT pulmonary angiograms and had an RV ratio greater than 0. 0.9. And it was pretty similar who had RV dilation on CT, the patients who had a pulmonary embolus versus those who didn't have a pulmonary embolus, which says a lot. It, it says a lot that Probably is hard to tease apart, but I think that the biggest thing is that there are a lot of people out there who are going to have RV dilation on CT that are not necessarily in right heart failure. CT is also a static modality without getting too technical. Like you're seeing one snapshot and you don't know when it is in the cardiac cycle. So comparing the size of one chamber to the other is fraught by that limitation in a way that
0: echocardiography isn't. So, what you're saying is they need to stay longer in the CT. Forget more images, maybe like live video recordings. They could just just that, get more CT. <laughs> oh, exactly. I see. You've seen a CT perfusion done. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Let's do it. We need more CT. Okay, let's get that's to treatment. Right. When we when we talk about treatment for these patients, so revascularization was at the top of the list, and this is when we're thinking about things like right ventricular MI, and they have some kind of coronary occlusion or need better perfusion and I could totally understand that that makes perfect sense but that's not going to happen in the ED that's just something we have to rely on our cardiac colleagues to to help us with is there anything we can do optimizing this patient in the ED before they're moved on to the ICU or maybe they're still pending an ICU bed and they've been sitting in our ED for a while and we're still responsible for managing them
1: yeah so you want to be managing preload first i think is, is the starting place we alluded to this before but you want to be assessing is this someone who has low right atrial pressure, is someone who has elevated right atrial pressure, because that's going to make a big difference. Without going into it too much, figure nine in the paper has a fairly, I think, fairly straightforward table, a two by two table for how to interpret an IVC ultrasound to estimate right atrial pressure. There's caveats here, but the thing to know is that when Your IVC ultrasound says right atrial pressure is low, so three millimeters of mercury, it's accurate. When it says it's high, so 15 or more millimeters of mercury, it's accurate. When it gives you kind of a middle of the road result, and you can, again, go look to the table to see what that would actually mean in terms of size and collapsibility, it's less clear. But with that in mind, like the correlation to invasive measures is pretty good when you're at either of those extremes. And so that's your first step along with your clinical assessment of whether someone is volume up, volume down, et cetera. And then you get into the decision of, do you give fluids? Do you do nothing? Do you diurese? There were some interesting studies in PE patients, and they were very small, that found some sort of not patient-oriented outcomes. So things like, did their PESI score get better? Or did they have a decrease in heart rate? and weren't really powered to detect patient-oriented outcomes. But each of them found that giving 40 to 80 of IV furosemide in PE patients who had signs of right heart failure was a little better for those outcomes compared to giving fluid. Again, like you need a big trial with patient-oriented outcomes to make a big difference there. But I do think it suggests that maybe the 500cc fluid bolus in someone who had right heart failure whether due to PE or another cause probably isn't helpful unless you look at their IVC and it's just completely flat. Donnie, I know you. this was probably the one part where me and Donnie kind of had some disagreement here. So I, I want him to chime in here as well.
2: I think that your characterization was more than fair. Honestly, reading more and more has brought me closer to your point of view, truthfully. So submassive PEs, Submassive acute pulmonary embolism with signs of volume overload on ECHO, I agree. I think that those limited early studies show benefit, and it's in my practice now. I'm going to be very careful in my selection criteria, so basing on the right atrial pressure, basing on the hemodynamics, big plethoric IVC without respiratory variability and somebody who could function otherwise, who is not hypovolemic on exam, so you were hyper, I, I actually did that not that long ago. I recently evidenced that...
3: Yeah, Elsa also you talked about this when we did his issue on PEs and it really just blew a gasket in my brain. And I think that you guys have just even further taken that point along by saying, look, just look and see where their fluid status is, look and look at their IVC and make the right decision based on the data you can get.
0: Yeah.
1: And what then- if
3: the person needs some kind of respiratory
0: support? Is there something we're supposed to avoid or avoid yes. at all costs or
2: maybe avoid if at all possible? So if you can avoid intubating people with RV failure, that's good. people who have pre-diagnosed RV failure who are then undergoing invasive mechanical ventilation have much, much higher mortality.
1: I often teach our residents that the difficult intubation is like, there's obviously lots of anatomically difficult intubation. The person has at GSW in particular, like through the roof of the mouth. Okay. Yes. But... The physiologically difficult airway is the one that we underappreciate and that becomes a big problem here. And we think about hypoxia, acidosis, hypotension a lot. The one other part of physiologically difficult airway, meaning high risk of causing cardiopulmonary collapse when you intubate both from positive pressure and ARTS, meds and all those sorts of things is the patient with pulmonary hypertension, person with RV dysfunction. So I would stay away unless you, until you need to. And then when you do intubate, if you do my own personal practice, and this is just out of an abundant caution and have a large study to support this, I will start people on norepinephrine. If I have the time, I will start them on norepi. It just have the drip hooked up and in the room so that when we intubate, even if the pressure was 100 over something, like, that I'm sure that I'm able to support them through the intubation process. Because again, it's about being hemodynamically brittle. Once it happens, like once their hemodynamics are collapsing, it's too late. You've already put them in a huge risk. You want to try and intervene before that happens.
2: Yeah. I found a retrospective study of 340 patients, even just moderate right ventricular dysfunction has an odds ratio of 26 for peri-intubation, cardiac arrest, and hemodynamic instability with just moderate RVD.
3: So with that in mind, are you, do you feel like you're leaning more towards BiPAP, like trying to just buy yourself more time to get more data? Like, How do you approach that now?
2: Yeah. So you can try your non-invasive. It will also increase pressure on that RV a little bit, but no studies that we found have shown increased risk from non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So certainly trying to maximize those settings, make sure your seal's good, make sure the positioning is good. And then I think what Nick was saying before, trying to optimize your patient, dynamically to take the strain off of that heart and try to avoid at any cost, this really high morbidity, high mortality intervention that you want to do as little as possible. And if you have to do it with as much control as you can. And it's interesting that we didn't
1: find anything really examining, well, how much of a risk is BiPAP because it is positive pressure. I think that without any studies really looking at whether that amount of positive pressure is a risk or not, the basic sort of common sense is that it's not anywhere near as much positive pressure that's actually being transmitted to the pulmonary tree. Like, At a certain point, you can crank their IPAP and their EPAP up a lot and you're just going down the esophagus. Like you're not increasing their intrathoracic pressure that much more. So you're probably not going to see a huge difference. But the good news is, exactly like you said, TR, like you can stop it. We do know that BIPAP lowers people's blood pressure. And we have the hypertensive heart failure escape type of patient, just putting them on BIPAP often before you pull out your two milligram dose of nitro. Whole other topic.
3: Oh, that's my favorite topic in the world, though. Just keep talking. Yeah. I love it.
1: Yeah. Just putting on the BiPAP is going to lower their blood pressure a good amount, too. On the other side of things where you have the patient who you're worried about, like if you put them on BiPAP and they they start getting a little hemodynamically shaky, okay, that's your indication that you probably should do high flow nasal oxygen if you have it as an alternative.
2: It also warns you that if you end up having to go with more ventilatory management, that you need to be ready for the sequelae of that. And I'll just throw in there another study that we did cite, Nick, showing that with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, it, it's an, associated with improved markers of RV function in a prospective cohort of 84 patients. So we skipped over TAPSE, but it's great. It's fast. It's easy to measure basic right ventricular performance, and you can measure it before and after your, after your intervention and see if it's getting better.
1: There, there were limitations to that study, and that investigator is wondering whether there's some confirmation bias there or whether there's some confounding by indication. So he is currently looking to submit a very large NIH grant to try and study that.
2: That was me. Sounds like something that should be funded to me.
3: To follow that up, just because this was the one thing I wanted to go back to. If you have a chance to do a bedside echo, you can't get a real echo. Is there a list of things that if you're able to do it as an ER doctor, you're going to be able to like reliably say this is how good or bad the RV function is? And do I need to learn how to do a TAPSE myself, or can I do it without the TAPSE?
0: Okay, I'm going to interrupt here for just one second for our listeners and say that the TAPSE that we're talking about here is detailed in figure seven in the article, and the procedure is called a tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion, or T-A-P-S-E, or TAPSE for short. It's supposed to measure the ventricular movement of the lateral annulus, the seat of the tricuspid valve across the cardiac cycle. And there is evidence in meta-analyses of over 81 studies that greater ventricular movement of the valve annulus actually correlates with greater right ventricular systolic function. So this is a bedside echocardiography technique that can be used to estimate right ventricular function. When you get the measurement of the waveform, a value less than 17 millimeters in the M mode of your ultrasound machine is concerning for right ventricular dysfunction. Some ultrasound machines will calculate this for you, but not everyone will. And now, back to the conversation.
2: So I strongly recommend you learn how to do a Tapsy, if only because it is really easy. I do a Tapsy in every echo I do because it takes an extra 30 seconds and provides you with a wealth of information that I I like. You said it properly. You said get to do an echo. I love doing echoes. It's great. But even though I'm pretty good at visually assessing things, sometimes I do these numbers and I get surprised. I don't know about you, Nick. Every now and again, I'll, I do taps, I do, I do the numbers, I'm like, oh, I didn't expect that to be lower. We have a figure that, that we think is good, figure seven, showing how to do a tapsy. And it's literally just, you can get an apical four-chamber view, you can do a tapsy. Yeah. All you do, get your apical four-chamber, you put M-mode over the tricuspid annulus, so tricuspid valve you put over the lateral side, and you turn on an M-mode. And then all you have to do is measure from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. It's all in, in that figure. It is so easy. If you can get an apical four-chamber, you're already done.
1: Yeah, I think if you're looking for one one measure that you really should prioritize learning if you don't know, I think TAPSIA is a pretty good one. Probably the best all-purpose. You got to pair it with other things too, like with your assessment of right atrial pressure by your IBC. Sometimes TAPSIA can be falsely normal, so it can be a higher than what RV systolic function actually is. And that tends to happen specifically in patients who have long-standing severe pulmonary hypertension. Now that said, you're probably going to have a pretty dilated RV in that patient too. And you're going to see a big thick wall RV. So that'll be your tip off. And I find practically that it actually doesn't make as much of a difference in the acute care setting. But I think like Donnie said, Tapsy itself is not that hard. It's just getting good at getting apical four-chamber images, and once you've got that, I think getting the TAPSIA is probably the helpful one. Then if I had to go to two or three, learning how to measure continuous wave Doppler through the tricuspid valve, through the the TR jet, that's how you measure right ventricular systolic pressure, and it's most newer machines, but uh, not a lot of older machines, unfortunately, We'll do the calculation for you. And this isn't, it's in one of the figures, but you just pick the point of the maximum velocity of the jet and it's four times that velocity squared. So don't do it in your head because I don't, I can't do it in my head. But like the ultrasound machine, you hit the point and it'll tell you, oh, that's an RVSP of this. I think that would be the other one. And then looking at the pulmonary artery, RVOT, pulse wave Doppler can be helpful too, but that's a bit harder. That's a really hard view to get in particular, that's right at your basal, your basal short access and a very specific part of that too.
2: I'll say this, Nick, even if you're the guy who picks the ultrasound that doesn't have the auto RVSP calculator every time, like me, there's about a thousand calculators online can count. If you just type calculate RVSP, it comes right up. It just has you enter the things. It'll even usually show you diagrams of where to measure it. If it's something that you're not used to doing. This is another one that you can do. It's not as easy as the Tapsy, but it's simpler than we think it is.
3: Last question, for me at least. Pressers. You talked about norepinephrine. You talked about the next sequelae of things. The only question I walked away with was, what do I do with my patients in some kind of a dysrhythmia, like my AFib RVRs that I'm worried about those patients? I'm used to giving them phenylephrine when I need to because I'm already worried their heart rate's going too fast. Do you have a kind of a paradigm you approach the people that are already tachycardic and you're worried about RV dysfunction with when you need to support their pressure?
1: I think I'm going to give one answer that's very sepsis specific and then another answer that's everything else. So sepsis specific, this is going to sound crazy, but and it's out of the scope of our article, but I think is very relevant to it. And it's a great question is in septic shock, assuming a patient has been appropriately resuscitated, There was a meta-analysis, I don't know, two or three years ago in CHEST of a bunch of randomized trials where they gave those patients on maximum norepi who had adequate fluid resuscitation and still had persistent tachycardia, AFib of RVR. They gave them Esmolol on top of the norepi and actually improved their mortality. How that works, I don't know. I could theorize, but it sounds crazy, right? Giving a beta-1 agonist to someone who you're giving a beta-1 antagonist to. That would be my plug for... Weird thing to do in the case of sepsis specifically. Outside of sepsis, it's hard, right? You don't want to make them persistently tachycardic. Generally speaking, in heart failure, whether it's right sided or left sided, tachycardia is a bad sign. It means that you have reached a point at which you're maintaining cardiac output by the heart rate side of the equation because. Cardiac output is heart rate, temp, stroke volume. And if you can't augment your stroke volume more, the only thing you have is to go up. I think that, you know, the short answer as far as if you really need another vasoactive agent to raise blood pressure, vasopressin is probably your next best because it's not going to have that inotropic effect. And there is some theoretical benefit in pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. But as we go through in the article, it's there's unfortunately like not a lot of great evidence around superiority of one agent versus the other. Everyone agrees don't use phenylephrine just because it doesn't make like it seems to be bad. We know that there's a lot of alpha-related vasoconstriction in the pulmonary vasculature, but outside of that, it's just yeah we think norepi's good, and then we're not really sure from there.
2: Yeah, we go through some of the evidence for some of these more exotic. Support agents like Milrinone, Levisamendan, which is not approved for use in the United States. But hey, we have doctors practicing all over the world. There's no data for any of those that show superiority. For example, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. I think there was a study going head to head, Dobutamine versus Milrinone, that showed basically equivalent outcomes. And Dobutamine, we're much more comfortable with. Honestly, those are medications I will think about, but I'm usually not starting milrinone on somebody unless I'm talking to an intensivist, preferably a right heart specialist intensivist and saying, hey, I have this person who needs support. I'm thinking about milrinone. You're going to take this patient. Do you want me to take them? Now, what would I do if all of the ICUs in the nearby area were on fire and my phones are broken and the internet was broken? I'd think about it. But uh, with the knowledge that there are other medications that I'm more familiar with that have equivalent... Efficacy and probably more comfortable safety profile. Now, in your specific setting where somebody's in fib with RVR, starting a beta agonist is not high on my list of things to do. But I was generalizing more to the person with RV failure who's an extremist who needs hemodynamic support while I'm trying to optimize before maybe I think about intubating.
1: Yeah, it might be a good scenario to honestly consider cardioversion if you think there's a chance that it's going to help. Now, granted, Presumably it's due to an underlying cause that you're not going to fix in the ED. There, there's a counter argument there about like how useful that would be. The broader point though, and I think like what I would really take home is that as soon as you're starting, certainly to reach for a second vasoactive agent. And anytime you have someone who is in right heart failure that's requiring some kind of extra support, I would say anyone who you're starting to ramp an effort on, to be honest, but at least anyone who you're reaching for a second presser. That unstable patient, it is much, much better to transfer them as early as possible to a tertiary care center that has cardiovascular surgery support that can do, put in a temporary RVAD or a balloon pump or some other kind of mechanical support. Because all the data related to mechanical cardiac support in this population, it's not really clear who benefits the most, but we do know that the people who don't benefit are the ones who are already in multi-organ failure and are too far Mm -hmm. gone. Those patients, by the time that they're on their second or third presser, like putting them on VA ECMO or on a temporary RVAD, Pella is the one that we have at our shop. That's not going to do anything. It might, but the outcomes are very poor once you start developing multi-organ failure. So this would be my plug for transferring to another hospital. And I think that that hospital, like they shouldn't, they should understand.
0: All right. We've hit just about everything in the article. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to be sure to touch on before we sign off?
1: So I'd say the biggest thing on that topic that we found is that in multiple recent meta analyses, it's fairly clear that your... Clinical tools for risk stratifying, high risk versus low risk PE, especially in an age where we can send some of those subsegmental PEs home on Eloquists. Unfortunately, your clinical prediction tools like Spezi, for instance, you're still going to have benefit. Even if you have a low risk Aspesi patient, you're still going to have benefit from an echo. Now, there is some, there was some conflict between certain studies here, but. Ultimately, the biggest and most recent meta-analyses that we found of multiple studies on this topic suggested that doing an echo to identify is there RV dysfunction or not. So is there a dilated RV or is there a depressed tapsy below 17? That that does help identify the patients who would otherwise be low risk by SPESI who are actually high risk and vice versa. As far as how to manage that patient. I think it's more of a change in disposition, to be honest, because for for the patient who is hemodynamically stable, meaning they're not a massive PE, you're not giving lytics, this kind of submassive category, this is a whole other podcast worth of topic. But for the purposes here, I think the takeaway is just being able to identify that there is RV dysfunction in a hemodynamically stable patient, that's someone who One doesn't go home, and two, depending on your system resources and your own practice and thoughts on the submassive PE literature, that's someone who you can consider transferring to a place that has or to do a a more invasive procedure. But honestly, that's a controversial area.
0: All right, I will say that every article nowadays from EB Medicine has a clinical pathway in it. And this particular one has three pages of clinical pathway in it, which just speaks to the complexity of the topic. But this is going to get converted into an interactive version, which I think will actually be very helpful because the pathway guides you through the initial presentation, whether or not they're hypotensive or in shock, whether or not they are hypoxic and need respiratory support and whether or not the etiology of the right heart failure is determined as seen by all of these diagnoses from acute pulmonary embolus to acute biventricular heart failure and how to treat each one of these at the end of the algorithm, which honestly I found quite the undertaking. So I just want to say thank you to you and the three authors who aren't on the call for actually putting in the effort to put this together. It's going to make an outstanding interactive digital pathway that I'm sure is going to be very helpful for a lot of our listeners and a lot of our subscribers we hope so yeah thank you guys so much it was a pleasure and that's a wrap everyone thanks for joining us for this episode and a special thank you to dr daniel brenner and dr nick harrison for joining us to explain and share their wisdom with us regarding right ventricular heart failure until next time don't forget ebmedicine.net for all of those resources and the mobile app and clinical pathways be safe everyone